Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hey, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission. And this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. And each week we talk with different creative Mississippians. We talk to people, musicians, craftspeople, photographers, writers, and, and, and people who help promote the arts of Mississippi. And today I'm talking with one of one of the longtime promoters and has been active in promoting the, the blues heritage of Mississippi and the, the Deep South as a whole, Bruce Watson, who is a co-owner and general manager with Fat Possum Records in Oxford, Mississippi. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, I brought you on today. Y- y'all have stuff coming out all the time, but um, press release that came out uh, er- earlier in the last few weeks talked about this new documentary film that you guys have just released called Memphis 69. And um, before we kind of get into the story of it, maybe you just tell a little bit about, so this is documenting the uh, 1969 Memphis Country Blues Festival that took place up in Memphis at the Overton Park Band Shell in, in, the, in Overton Park back in the late 1960s. Maybe we could start off, you could just tell us a little bit about the history of the festival before we get into the, the documentary itself. Well, the first festival was in 1966, the, the uh, 69 festival was the fourth festival. It was uh, uh, organized by the Memphis Country Blues Festival, uh, Memphis Country Blues Society, and that consisted of Bill Barth, Nancy Jeffries, Jim Dickinson, Robert Palmer, um, Jimmy Crossway. There, there were there were quite a few people involved, and I'm sure I'm leaving out some names. But uh, the first festival took place in 1966. It was held at the Overton Park Band Shell. And this was a place where, like, a week before, the Ku Klux Klan had had a meeting. So, you know, a week later with, like, you know, a thousand, you know, kids there celebrating, like, you know, black and white people united was, was pretty amazing for Memphis at that time. You know, it was a year before Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it was just, just a really, really nice gathering of black and white people united by music. I think the other thing that's interesting about these festivals is that there there were other festivals happening in other parts of the country starting to showcase the, you know, the older blues performers like up in Ann Arbor and that. But this was really a local festival. There was really the performers were all kind of Memphis area. Local. Yeah. Like Joe Joe Calicut, Furry Lewis, you know, um, Buka White, Nathan Beauregard, all these people were pretty much local particularly the first festival was like, you know, when you get to 1969, you have like Johnny Winter, which is our festival, and and uh, John Loudermilk, and, and, you know, Canned Heat was supposed to play, and they didn't make it. So, but the first festival was really a tribute to these country, country blues musicians. And it seemed to, you know, there's been like uh, Robert Palmer, who's the longtime, you know, kind of documenting Memphis music and that has written about it in the past. It seems like the festival... Had even though it was it wasn't around for very long, it had kind of like a long term kind of legacy in terms of, you know, informing a lot of people about the music. 
It did, you know, and, um, you know, the four years that it happened, you know, it, it, 69 was, I think, officially the last uh, last festival. 70, I think, corporate, uh, you know, some corporations got involved and maybe the city got involved. But, like, the 69 was really the last festival. And there's a, it, it, there's a great book by Ro- Robert Gordon called um, It Came From Memphis. And Chapter 9 in that book is... Uh, it, talks about these festivals and it's i, I encourage anybody to read that and it kind of like gives a real back history of everything and and how the festival started it was like a really it, it, it in that book it's kind of like it's kind of a uh, an unfortunate they they were kind of too successful in that they you know <laughs> they were just some kind of the local freaks as it were who everyone kind of disregarded but then people saw the success and they kind of glommed onto it from from what I can tell, the cities had got involved and said, "Hey, there's some money to be made there," and then they started putting on their own festival, and and you know the rest was history. But these these four festivals were something really special. When you were getting started, you know, recording artists and and getting involved with blues in the early '90s, did you had you heard it? Was there any talk still of the of the of this festival of kind of its legacy or that when you were getting started? You know, I didn't know anything. Honestly, embarrassingly, I didn't know anything about it until I read Robert Gordon's book. You know, um, R.L. Burnside, Junior Kimbrough. I think those guys might have been a little bit too young or just weren't involved in it. You know, Joe Callis was gone by the time we started making records. Furry Lewis was gone. So, you know, and, and you know, Bob Palmer, you know, produced six of our first records. You know, he was kind of the, uh, he's kind of the, uh, figurehead in the early days of our label and it just really never came up you know so i didn't really become aware of it until like i said i started you know met robert gordon and started reading robert's books you're listening to the arts hour i'm larry morrissey and today we're talking with bruce watson from fat possum records and we're talking about their new documentary film memphis 69 so take us into the story of how you discovered this footage well, the film was was really the brainchild of Gene Gene Rosenthal. Gene Rosenthal was a is a guy who's still around, and um, he had he owned Adelphi Records. He started Adelphi Records after after this film festival. But he came down to Memphis in the late '60s, early '70s, and basically just recorded everybody he could possibly record. He rented out the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, which the the Peabody and Hotel. Now in Memphis is a really nice hotel, but back then it was it was a pretty shady hotel. So he rented out the the uh, the Peabody Hotel in Memphis for about a month and just set up recording equipment and recorded anybody who would record. So he recorded he recorded Furry, he recorded R.L. Burnside, he recorded Joe Calica, Booker White. Just the the list of like uh, the artists that he recorded is amazing. So he spent like you know months recording these people. So there there was. He's got just, he had just hours and hours of, of audio that no one's ever heard. So uh, my business partner, I, Matthew Johnson, we're, we're trying to negotiate a deal with Gene to buy this audio footage um, and buy the Blues Masters that he had released on Adelphi Records. So Matthew and I flew to Silver Springs, Maryland, where Gene is located, and we were having a meeting with him, and, you know, he, I, I live in Memphis now. And he's like, "Oh, you live in Memphis?" He goes, "Yeah, you know, I I filmed the I filmed and recorded the 1969 Memphis Country, the Memphis Blues Festival." I was like, "No, you didn't." He's like, "Yeah." He goes, "The footage, the tapes, and the footage are in my basement," and I was like, 
oh wow so anyway that became part of the negotiation you know i was like oh I've, we've got to have this footage so that became part of the negotiation so you know we the negotiations went on for about two years and finally he was like yeah yeah let's just do this deal and get it over with i'm tired of talking to you guys <laughs> so, so so anyway we we did the deal um the footage had not been digitized or the audio tape you know it was like it had never been transferred to digital so I went up to Silver Springs, loaded up a van, and just brought back a van full of tapes and film, and just then we just got it back here and said, okay, what are we going to do with it? So one of our, our good, dear friends, Mandy Stein, who made the, uh, the, the Fat Possum North Mississippi Hill Country documentary, You See Me Laughing, um, I, I reached out to her about, you know, who can help me put, pull all this stuff together. And they, and she recommended Joe and Lisa LaMantina. Um, they were making a film about her father, uh, or helping her make a film about her father, Seymour Stein. So I became fast friends with Joe and Lisa. And so we, we started working together, just putting this film together. We, I, you know, I had it digitized. I transferred the audio tape here at my studio in Memphis and we just started pulling it together and just seeing what was actually there because we really had no idea what was there. So out of that came this footage, you know, um, and that's kind of how the whole thing started. And this was uh, Rosenthal. He was just kind of like, had he done film before or was this like a new type of project for him to take on? You know, I think he, I think he, I think this was a new project for him. He had done a lot of audio. He had a recording studio in um in Maryland and he had done some early recordings with John Fahey he had done you know some um you know, Sunhouse recordings so so he was he was more of an audio guy but i think he pretty much like uh sold everything he could sell to buy camp you know buy like three cameras and film to record this thing he really kind of put himself on the line and then I think it came to the point where, like, he had all this footage and then he couldn't afford to, like, you know, transfer it or, or have it, uh, you know, have it transferred at the time. He, he had it processed, but nothing ha- happened after the process. So, you know, basically, you know, it was, it was always a project that he, that he wanted to get going and it, it was in his basement, you know, for 50 years. Anyway, so no, to answer your question, I, I don't think he was a film guy, but, um, you know, what a fantastic job they did you know, capturing this stuff. Yeah, it really did. I mean, it's a, it was like a multi-camera shoot, right? I mean, they were using, yeah. And, and, and a separate audio feed and everything. So it's for, for, for amateurs, they did a really good job and and they did a really good job, you know? And, and, um, yeah, it's, 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 you can imagine like when we were going through this stuff, just watching it, it was just like, Oh man, just getting goosebumps. Just like, like watching this stuff and listening to these performances, you know? And so this, yeah, so this had never been seen until the, this release. Like, this had just been sitting. Wow. Never been seen. You know, it's like uh, on the first day, the Friday afternoon, oh, I think a public television. It was a, Steve Allen had a public television show called The Sounds of Summer. And I think, the, I can't remember, the. I think it was WMOT was the uh, public television station that came down and basically was doing a, you know, kind of a fluff piece on like, you know, the hippies and the black performers and stuff. And, and so that was out there and that was videotaped. And that was, that, that was only videotaped on, there was like Friday afternoon, there was a rehearsal, a sound check, and then Friday night. That was the only footage 
that's ever been out there. And, and you can find that online, I think, on YouTube. It's out there. But as far as the rest of the performances, like Saturday and the Sunday performances in the park with the gospel, none of that has ever been seen. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty stunning to to see this, especially a lot of these performers. I think lived, you know, several of them lived for maybe another ten years or so, but they were maybe not in their prime later on. So they were all very like you know, Furry Lewis and the rest. They all seemed like in really good performing condition. Yeah, and you have like Nathan Beauregard. He was like, you know, he's either ninety eight or one hundred six. Who knows? But still, I mean. That's just amazing. I don't think he was around much longer after the festival. And just to like to have that and, and like to see that is just amazing. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Bruce Watson from Fat Possum Records up in Oxford, Mississippi. They got a brand new documentary film they've just released called Memphis 69. It documents the 1969 Memphis Country Blues Festival that was held in uh, Overton Park in uh, Memphis. So before I get too far in, Bruce, I wanted to just kind of mention if you could talk about the availability of uh, you know, the status of the availability of the documentary right now. Sure. The documentary is on YouTube for anybody in the world who wants to watch it. You can also uh, buy the DVD uh, on the Fat Possum website. Um, and right now, those are the only two um, outlets that we have for it. But it, it's uh, it's already getting views. I was watch- looking at it the other day and interesting to see, you know, the comments in the, <laughs> a lot of YouTube comments, videos on comments on YouTube videos are not the greatest, but this one I think is really interesting in that there's people who actually were at the festival who were commenting. Right. You know, and uh, yeah. And I was like, you know, I was preparing for this interview last night. I was like, well, let me look and see how many negative comments I got on YouTube. Cause usually it's just like, Oh, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And it was like, you know, overwhelmingly like, uh, you know, it's, it, it feels like it's, it's really positive. And, uh, and, and that's what I wanted when we made this thing, you know, we, we had a lot of obstacles making this, this film because, you know, you know, stuff was lost over the years as far as the you know, audio has degraded, films degraded. So we, we, we made the best film we could with what we had to work with. And, um, you know, I, I just, I just wanted to put it out there in the world and, and just see all the positive comments is, is, is really touching and, and it's exactly what we wanted. Now, did you do kind of a a, a a screening of it in Memphis a while back, pre-COVID? 
We took it to Sundance in 2019 and premiered it there. And then we did a Los Angeles screening um, a couple months after that. And then we did a big Memphis screening at the Crosstown Arts Theater in, I believe it was June or July of 2019. Which was fantastic because, you know, people who were at the festival showed up, you know, it was like, you know, we brought, you know, Jimmy Crosswaith up on stage and Marsha Hare was, you know, was there and she was the girl like, you know, holding the umbrella. So it was really nice to, um, to show it in Memphis and bring it back home to Memphis. And, um, it was, it was a really special night. Then we, you know, we, we had, we had intended to show it at more festivals in 2020, but we all know what happened there. And so... We just, you know, last year we just kind of didn't do anything with with the film, and so yeah, no, here we are in 2021, and it's it's out there in the world. So, what was your what was the general feedback from the audience and that from the Memphis audience when they saw it? Man, it was really great because um, people would play and like you know a furry list would play and people would clap, you know, clap in the film or like. You know, Marsha Hare would be like, "Ah, oh, that's me." You know, so it's like the, the the audience in Memphis was 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 obviously really involved in a way that like you know someone at Sundance or or you know in Los Angeles wouldn't be involved. They were they were you know emotionally invested in the film. Yeah, it's kind of like a home movie that nobody had ever seen. Ex- exactly, you know, people in there like you know, there's there's so many great audience shots in the film, and you you like, right. you know, people come up to me after the film. I saw myself in the film, which was really it was really awesome. So um, yeah, it was great. Good, it was a really great night. I think that's one of the things that is really um, charming about the movie is that there are the great performances, but they capture the whole kind of milieu of the time. You get to see all these young people their fashions, their reactions, you know, that whole, they build a lot of context into the movie that, that a regular concert movie maybe wouldn't have. Did Rosenthal talk to y'all much about making the movie and what he kind of his struggles with it or what, what it was like doing it? Well, I mean, Gene's an interesting guy, you know, it's like, uh, after we got the film, we didn't really talk too much about it. It was like a business negotiation, but after we got the film, we just, we just kind of did what we wanted with it, you know? And, you know, I'd send stuff to Gene and he was always like, oh yeah, that looks great. That looks great. You know? And I, I, I feel like he's pretty happy with it, you know? Um, it's kind of hard to peg him down, but, but, um, I, I feel like he's happy with what we've done with it. So you, so you talked about kind of like there's differing levels of like some of the stuff is degraded and some quality is not there. Talk a little bit about, you know, this was not just like upload digital and, and, and put it on DVD. There, maybe you could talk a little bit about the making this thing from what the... Well, I mean, th- this was 1969 and, and, you know, I think there was apparently some really good asset floating around the festival that day. So I think the... Uh, I think the some of the filmmakers and particularly the audio guy was maybe tripping on acid a little bit. So so there were some there was you know the film's pretty straight. The audio was kind of all over the place, and um, you know there, there's like a tone that you that like you you hit to like sync up the audio to the film, and so like this tone would come in randomly during certain songs, and it's just a high pitched tone. So. 
we always was like, hey, the audio, the guy recording this must have been tripping on acid. So uh, because and, and you know and and some of that stuff is just totally ruined the audio. So you might see, you know, I've had a, some of the negative comments that I've seen on YouTube is like, why is this performance so short? Sometimes that's all we had. You know, we just tried to work with what we had. So um, we we could have probably made the the film maybe thirty or forty minutes longer. But I don't know. It's right now. It's an hour and fifteen minutes, and it's a real easy. It's real easy to sit down and watch it and not get kind of bogged down in it. And right. you know, at some point, we may you know release the other forty-five minutes of, of, of footage and stuff like that. But um, you know, it's like I I I wanted something like people's attention spans are so short now. I think like an hour and fifteen minutes is just a good introduction to this. And like I say, we may do something later on where it's like a, a little bit longer, but right now I think that's it's it's exactly what it needs to be to be out there in the world. Yeah. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey and our guest today is Bruce Watson with Fat Possum Records and we're talking about their new documentary film Memphis sixty nine. Maybe let's talk about, let's kind of hit some of the uh, highlights of the performers that are included for people so they, so they know. One that, you know, that has a connection to your label in another generation is, is Reverend, Wa- Reverend Robert Wilkins. Right, right, right. That, that, the, the Reverend Wilkins uh, footage is just, just amazing. It's like, uh, you know, uh, and he's got the family band. What's really amazing is like to, to see John Wilkins playing guitar when he's. That's him. Yeah, okay. That's, that's John playing guitar. You know, and we lost yeah. we lost John to COVID last year, and uh, which is a huge loss. And uh, I'd made a record with him and put out on, on my Big Legal Mess label, I guess, twelve years ago. So so John and I were always pretty close, and um, like I said, it was huge to lose him, but. And and John was at the, the the Memphis showing of the film, so he 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 got involved in the panel discussion, which was really cool to see him like see you know his 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 brothers and sisters and family up on stage, and he hadn't seen that footage in fifty years. So, um, but I mean, he had to be in his like yeah early twenties then, you know. Yeah. So because I think he was seventy seven when he passed. So yeah, he had to be in his early twenties. So that footage is like really really powerful. You know, the, the the nice thing about it, too, is, like, that's the end of Friday night. That's the end of the Friday night show. Oh, okay. So, you know, they wrapped up the Friday night show with, with, with uh, Robert Wilkins and family, and it's just amazing. It's uh, that, that footage just blows me away. And, of course, Robert Wilkins was a, a blues musician recorded in the, in the 20s, 30s, but, but then, you know, went into the church and, you know, became a pastor and only played religious. So did he only play religious music? Uh, as far as I, as far as I know, he, he, at that time point, he was only, you know, playing re- religious music. And, um, you know, he became, you know, the Rolling Stones covered the song. Was it Prodigal Son was the song? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Prodigal Son, which is, you know, you know, another footnote in history. But, um, yeah, he, he was absolutely amazing. And and it was good to see that they had that broad, the, the organizers had that broad thought. They weren't going to like not have a gospel group, you know, that they, they, they included gospel as part of it, which I thought was kind of forward for that time. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and the, the uh, one of my favorite things is just the footage from the uh, the Sunday afternoon show, because, you know, they, they'd only rent the uh, Overton Park shell for Friday and Saturday. So, oh, okay. so they only had it for Friday and Saturday. So... The Sunday gospel show was right next to the shell in the park, which was, you know, it was awesome. And is that, that the amazing footage of the, uh, what was it? The, uh, 
the uh, Salem Harmonizers, which was just yeah. amazing. They were from Olive Branch, Mississippi, and then the the Fred Mc, the Fred McDowell footage is just just awesome. It, but um, yeah, it's, it's it was amazing. That is it. That explains that. Now I couldn't figure out. I was like, are yeah. they on the side of the stage? They're on the side. Kind of, yeah, they're on the yeah, side yeah. of the stage. Yeah, they just did that. Well, that's great. I mean, those kind of like more um, informal performances sometimes just are even more powerful than putting a small group on that gigantic Overton Bark bandshell stage, you know. Exactly. And then, you know, the the, the footage that, that the film starts with is like, you know, the Barquets and Rufus Thomas. And it's like, that footage is amazing because, what, two years earlier in December of 67, you know, all the Barquets pretty much were gone with Otis Redding, you know, in the plane crash. So right. this was the reformed Barquets less than two years later, or two years later, and um, just to see them and like, uh, you know, in that, that Friday afternoon slot and oh gosh, it's yeah. just amazing. And then like, you know, you know, with Rufus Thomas, like, you know, dancing and, you know, walking the dog. It's just, just like, my God. I mean, that's that's like just what a beautiful snapshot of Memphis, like especially what, what was going on in Memphis at the time with like, you know, stacks and even high records and all that stuff is just like that was what a way to start a festival. Yeah, and it the the thing unlike uh you know festivals today that have covered stages, they were like out in the open s- midday sun. It looked so so hot. I couldn't, and they were in full stage. They're in full stage, you know, uh, apparel. They're not wearing t-shirts or anything. They're not, and and like in Robert Gordon's book, you know, is like uh you know he he talks about like you know that was an afternoon performance. So it was probably three or four o'clock in the afternoon, the heat of the day. And, you know, the uh, public radios, you know, you can see in the, you can see in the footage, you can see the video cameras. And so they, they performed and then the, the, the public television people were like, oh, we didn't get that. Can you do that again? <laughs> so, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Bob Palmer says, you know, it was amazing because they performed it again and it was even better the second time in hundred degree heat. And, um, no, it was great. Yeah, true professionals, the Barquets. It also interesting, it's kind of like you think of Rufus Thomas now, you think of his crazy, he was in his wild, you know, clothes and stuff and this was a very uh slick Rufus Thomas in a in a in a sharp suit and just looking dressed to the nines. Well, you know, he was the MC of the festival for the uh for so it was like, you know, and and just like he, he, there's there's tons of stage banner too, like him telling jokes and everything and we we didn't have room to put all that in there. But it's just okay. amazing to hear that stuff. There's probably 30 minutes of stuff, 30 minutes of audio of him just talking. You know, there's not film footage, but there's 30 minutes of audio of him just like being Rufus Thomas, which is awesome. Just filling time. Exactly. Kind of, oh, that's awesome. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, he, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> look at him. He's just, he's, I mean, he was dressed, he was like, professional man on stage there, exactly right? not, the, not his later wild man look and then the book of white footage is amazing especially like you know at the at the nighttime footage where he's like well i got to do something to show these kids something so he picks up the guitar and starts playing it behind his head you know it's like i don't know if he saw Jimi hendrix do that or what but it, or, but it was just like oh yeah i'm gonna show these kids something and like you can tell like the audience just goes nuts whenever he does that oh yeah it's yeah. it's so good and then like you see Nathan Beauregard, and he's like, "That's his nephew who's on the stage with him." Is they, they, his nephew was there to kind of help take care of him, and I can't remember his nephew's, nephew's name, but he was 106 years old. Pretty amazing, you know, 106 years old. 
that's the things he'd seen in his life was just pretty amazing. So. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're in our final segment for the Arts Hour today. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Bruce Watson from Fat Possum Records up in Oxford. And they've got a new documentary film, Memphis 69, that documents the 1969 country Memphis Country Blues Festival that we've been talking about. So, so there are, you know, I just want to reiterate for everyone, there are multiple Mississippi, you know, even though we're talking about Memphis today, there are multiple Mississippi performers who are featured in the film. Um, uh, we, we talked about Son Thomas. We talked about um, Bucka White. I think Robert Wilkins had some uh, 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 Memphis. So, so, so this is a, a, a lot of Mississippi is is in the is in this Memphis festival. So you've got um, so the the documentary is out now, but there's also a, a lot of audio. So y'all are going to be putting out. Tell us about the soundtrack. So the soundtrack is is about two hours of music. It uh, comes out on streaming services. Friday, um, August 20th. And, um, you know, there will be physical product at some point, but that will probably be next year for a record store day or something like that. So for the next eight or nine months, you can really only get it through Spotify and all similar services. Um, but yeah, that will be out next Friday or Friday the 20th. And that will include lots of stuff that's not featured. in That will recruit. Yes. Yes, indeed. And do you know that the one, uh, performer that i wasn't familiar with is the the english uh like singer songwriter type person joanne kelly yeah, yeah yeah she was an english uh folk performer and man her voice is amazing um i don't really even know how she ended up on the festival to be honest with you but um you know it's uh you know the the the, the footage with her and and sam backward sam ferk is is really amazing and like to hear those vocals come out of like you know a young white girl is is pretty amazing you know she 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 was had a following in in the uk but um and she 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 passed along pretty early you know one one thing about this film is like if you look at the 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 credits at the end and the, and the film is dedicated to everybody well everybody who's gone you know and you look at it and everybody in the film was pretty much gone you know all the performers that is so um you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, um, but Joanne Kelly was amazing. And then also, you also feature some of the, um, the, the, you know, the kind of the younger Memphis people who were, you know, making their own attempts at, at trying different versions of the blues. So there's some very traditional performers. There's some kind of like 
out there, kind of psychedelic stuff. Right. Well, there's the Insect Trust, which uh, consisted of, um, I think they put out two records on Atlantic. And, you know, the Insect Trust were basically, you know, members of the Memphis Country Blues Society. Uh, it was uh, Nancy Jeffries was the lead singer. Bill Barth was the guitar player. Um, you know, Bob Palmer was a horn player. So it was like a very experimental, like kind of like, you know, psychedelic music with Insect Trust. Then you had Moloch, which was a, a heavier kind of um, almost blues rock kind of band in the vein of like, I don't want to compare them to Led Zeppelin because they honestly, I think they were heavier in Led Zeppelin. But um, they were, uh, you know, that and that was like, you know, the the, the guitar player Lee Baker and Philip, Dur- Philip Dale Durham was the drummer and singer. And that stuff was really heavy. So, yeah, and then there was even, like, uh, all the folk stuff that was going on at the time. You had, like, um, the Jefferson Street Jug Band, and I just think that was just kind of loosey-goosey bunch of friends who maybe got together and put together a jug band because I can't find anything about the Memphis Jug Band. Um, I mean, the Jefferson Street Jug Band, and there is a Jefferson Street in Memphis, so I, I just assume it was probably the house they lived in or something like yeah. that. So, um, but, um, yeah, there, there, were, there were, like, local performers. I think that's... Uh, as far as local performers, as far as the young white kids, I think that's pretty much it. And then John Fahey, who, you know, kind of later took his own regard, you know, kind of went way beyond the blues, but it was kind of a fairly early performance. I guess he was, he looked like he was in his 20s still. He was really point. young. And, um, you know, I think John Fahey got involved in it through Gene Rosenfall because Gene and uh, John had produced some records together before John had started Tacoma. Um, so, you know, I know like some of the early recordings that we we purchased from from Gene um, are were produced by John Fahey and John Fahey had played on some of them. Like I think, uh, oh man, what was the anyway? Yeah, so so yeah, J- John I think came to the came to it through Gene, but I'm not 100 percent sure about that. And then speaking earlier of the the Gene Rosenthal, the audio recordings that y'all have, you have you put out a kind of a series a few years back of some of those recordings as well, right? That he did there in the Memphis area. We did, we did, and we partnered with Amazon Music with that, um, and we called it the Worry Blue series, and we we put out ten volumes of music, and it's like anywhere from you know. Furry Lewis, R.L. Burnside, you know, um, Booker White. There's a lot. There's just a lot of amazing stuff there. And um, so, yeah, we did that. There's 10, 10, 10 volumes of that. There's still hours and hours of stuff that has never, ever been heard. That, you know, it's just a matter of time of going through it all. But, um, you know, if I look at my tape vault, I, I walk in there, and it's, it's kind of overwhelming. Because oh, I'm like, wow. oh, here's 200 tapes I still need to transfer. <laughs> so anyway, it's 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 a great collection of music. Well, that's kind of the that's one of the models I think in in, in the record industry today these days, right? Is is kind of is is the back catalog and kind of you know pulling those. I know I talked with Malico a few months back, and they were just in their in their vaults, just digitizing as fast as they can. I know, I know, and, and that's the thing. I, I hate, you know, I don't like to buy this stuff and not get it out there. And the problem is just having enough time and manpower to do it. You know, because we're a pretty small company, we're decent size, we're a pretty small company, so there's only a, there's only a handful of things we can do. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and I'm talking to Bruce Watson with Fat Possum Records about the new documentary Memphis '69 that they just put out. 
Well, let's skip over a little bit now and talk about another project that you've been working on over the last couple of years, this, your Bible Entire Records, which is kind of a, a sub a, a, a sub-label of Fat Possum. It is. It's like a Bible Entire Recording Company. I started that label in... I guess late 2018, early 2019, and um, I moved to Memphis about five years ago. To, to we built a vinyl manufacturing plant called Memphis Record Pressing, and I had a recording studio down in Water Valley, Mississippi, which I sold. And I, I came to Memphis. I didn't have a recording studio, and I kind of looked around at the uh, the the landscape of what was going on in Memphis. I was like, "What can I do in Memphis that's different?" And so. You know, Goner Records, which I love, has is, is kind of got the garage rock kind of thing, you know, nailed down. The blues stuff is awesome, but I've made so many blues records, I'm kind of bored with it. And and there's really not a lot of blues performers that really kind of, like, move me right now. Um, and I'm sure if I found somebody, I would make a record with them. But right now, and then the soul thing, kind of the neo-soul thing had been done to death. So... You listen to gospel music now, and I'm not putting down gospel music now, but it's like it's pretty it's pretty slick. Usually, there are a lot of like synthesized horns, synthesized strings, you know, drum machines, and you know, for years I've been collecting these records, just these raw records from the '60s and early '70s, like stuff on designer records or Divine Spiritual or uh you know hse and just 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 labels that are just a really raw gospel and i was like well what if what if we um what if we presented gospel in that way again you know maybe we could like uh maybe we could cross over to a different audience you know um you know my goal was kind of to take gospel out of the church so i started calling gospel sacred soul just because if you call gospel sacred soul for, for for better or for worse, you you kind of get your foot in the door because if you if a lot of times if you say hey I'm doing gospel the door is closed it's not even open so so basically I, I hate to say rebrand it but I just started calling like you know what I'm doing sacred soul it has nothing to do with anybody else's doing but anyway at the same time I was starting this label I, I met these two young young guys name uh chris and courtney barnes and they were the barnes brothers and that was the first record i tried producing you know using a studio band that was trying to make records that sounded like they made in in the 60s gospel uh, sacred soul gospel records were made in the 60s and 70s that record came out and you know we did a big show in memphis and it, it was you know the response was really positive i got a lot of national press you know which was fantastic because you know how hard it is to get national press so then at the same time i bought a collection of recordings from a pastor named juan ship who in memphis who owned a label called divine spirituals in the 60s and 70s here in memphis he's in his 80s and he's still still around and he and i became business partners on reissuing this divine spiritual catalog and we've started putting that stuff out. There's a documentary coming out next year called The Divine Spiritual Record Story. We already put out two volumes of uh, another label that he owned called uh, JCR Records. So those, there's two volumes out. So anyway, so we started, he had like 300 audio tapes and, you know, we would meet up every Tuesday and Thursday at my studio and transfer these tapes. And he was like, you know, hey, uh, looks like we're going to get onto the Elizabeth King tapes let, let, let me call her i was like oh she's still alive so he would bring these 
older people who recorded 50 years earlier and say they would sit in when we were transferring the tapes. And like, for the most part, this is the first time they've heard their recordings in 50 years. So Elizabeth King came by and she was a sweetheart. And I was like, well, Pastor Ship, can Elizabeth still sing? And he's like, oh yeah, she can still sing. So I was like, well, let's just record a, um, or let, let, let's just set up a recording session for her. And she came in and I had my band ready and had, had pre-reduced them and we were ready. And she came in and she sang for five hours and it was just like, man, I had the hairs, you know, raising up arms. She was so good. So the, the, the first real record we put out after, after, um, after, after the Barnes brothers was Elizabeth King. And it's like the, the press was crazy. We got press everywhere. We got three NPR piece and it was amazing. So, so that, that, that's that's kind of what I'm doing now, right now. Um, and focus. We just did a. We've done two records on the dedicated Men of Zion from North Carolina. We uh, last week we had Johnny Ray Daniels, who's um, in his close to eighty, came down and we did three days and just made a great record with him. What else are we doing? We um, I, I went to North Carolina right before COVID last year, and we set up a recording studio in. Uh, Freeman Vines is a folk artist in in North Carolina who makes these what he calls the hanging tree guitars, and he's a music maker art artist. So I partnered up with a music maker, and we spent a week recording North Carolina Sacred Soul artist, and we made a documentary, and that comes out in October. So there's a two two record set and a documentary that comes out in October based on that, and dedicated men of Zion are in that documentary. Um, Johnny Ray Daniels is in that documentary, so that's got. We've got a lot going on on the Bible and Tower front, and our, our motto is "Retread your soul." That's great. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then you know, and, and for a while I was calling it, you know, it's so music without the sex, and a couple of the guys like, yeah, you need to quit saying that because there's plenty, there's plenty of sex. So I was like, okay, I'll quit calling it so music without the sex. So and so that's when I started calling it "We'll retread your soul," which is a better motto anyway. But um. Anyway, so that that's that's real exciting doing that that's that stuff. It's like you know, I'm, I'm at the point in my career where I try to only do stuff that moves me or stuff that I really enjoy, you know. And, yeah. and right now, this is what I really enjoy. So that's what that's what we're doing. And being in Memphis, you kind of have a bottomless supply of potential performers as well. It's great, man. There's you know, my studio's in in a section called Uptown Memphis. And if you draw a, like a, a, a one mile, you know, radius of the studio, there's probably 50 churches. In fact, the Elder Ward, um, Elder Ward is another divine spiritual artist. Um, his church is literally right down the street from my studio. So it's like there's so much of these like and there's you know, most of these churches, my, they're family churches. You know, they're, they're obviously some big mega churches. But a lot of the a lot of the smaller churches are what I'm really into. And like these smaller churches are usually family churches. You know, the, the whole family sings in the band, which is really, really attractive to me. And so so that's, you know, for the next I don't know how long it keeps going, but I'm going to keep documenting as long as I can. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.